If you're a regular news consumer, Supreme Court decisions can often feel technical. We know these cases are important, but if you're like me, I normally need an explainer to help understand the jargon. Technical cases like these became critical at the end of the 19th century, when the court ruled on labor and contract law. The precedents set in this era affected average workers across America and would come to define union organizing, progressivism, years to come. The laws to help people improve their lives, to help defend workers. Welcome back to Turn of the Century. In our second episode on the Supreme Court, legal expert Craig Estelbaum rejoins the show to explain the Lochner era and unpack high-stakes contract law. Get ready for a supreme roller coaster ride. Hello, everyone. I'm glad you're back with us today for another conversation with former Texas District Judge, law professor, and podcaster Craig Eslinbaum. Today, we're talking about the Supreme Court again, which is, like I, I said before, um, always relevant, always will be important until we change our constitution. Um, but today we're talking about the Lochner era. So still from the turn of the century, but very different in many ways, still has to do with business, very different from the civil rights cases and the road to Plessy versus Ferguson before. So Craig, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you again about these cases because you know, if you look at a textbook, if you especially if you look at a Supreme Court law textbook, uh, this term, this era, I think will come up, the Lochner era. Um, but it is very technical. Um, it's not quite as well known as Plessy versus Ferguson. So in a broad sense, what are we talking about today? Well, the Lochner era is a period between 1897 and 1937. And the Reader's Digest version, I guess, of the Lochner era would be it's a period when the Supreme Court was uh, somewhat regularly striking down economic regulations adopted by states based upon the court's own opinions about how the state should implement its policies or regulate matters in its border. So it's a period of time of what would be, in today's terms, be called judicial activism, where state law was being struck down on a regular basis because the court just didn't like the law. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to go going through my own notes. I was going to bring that up. That's kind of um, judicial activism or or legislating from the bench is almost a slur. I think um, you know for for judges or Supreme Court justices. Um, so there's a few key cases in the Lochner era. What's the first one that we should keep in mind? Well, the case that kind of kicked off or started the Lochner era is actually a case called Algar versus Louisiana. It was decided in 1897. But to give you some kind of background as to wh where this is leading, uh, in the period of time between, say, the end of the Civil War up until 1897, there was a lot of change in the United States. Your podcast is dealing with this. Uh, increasingly, people were moving into cities. I think the Ellis Island experiment with... Uh, broader immigration uh, to meet the labor demands of a growing nation was happening. And so 
progressives of that era became very concerned about health, safety, morals, uh, and the well-being of the public. And so they would create these laws that were designed to protect the health and safety of the public. Sanitation laws, you can go down the line, wage laws, hour laws, wage and work condition laws, all designed to create um, a healthier and a safer environment for for workers. You had the beginnings of the union movement maybe in the 1880s and 1890s. And so all of these things were coming into a head. And so in 1897, the case, Algar case, uh, plus, you just had some general economic regulation, and this is kind of one of those cases. Uh, the Louisiana uh, law at issue in Algar. So I'm going to jump in real go. quick. Sure. Um, so I, I'm not sure if you mentioned this term just before, but this feels like the beginning of kind of of progressivism of of people trying to use the government to create progress, to defend workers, um, you know, to adapt. Um, moral and uh, practical concerns in an industrial age. So then what's our, our first practical case we're talking about? I think we uh, we go to Louisiana a lot, so we're going down, back down to the bayou. <laughs> we go back to Louisiana. This is a case in Louisiana that made it illegal for Louisianans to enter into certain insurance contracts by mail with companies that were not in Louisiana. And so this is really not a health and safety regulation as much as it is just an economic regulation, a general economic regulation in the state of Louisiana. So Louisiana prosecuted a company called Algar and Company for making such a contract with a New York firm. So this case then goes to, I think they were fined, the case goes to the United States Supreme Court. And the court held nine to zero that the contract was made in New York where the insurance company was and the contract was lawful in New York. So therefore, it's a lawful contract. And it further held that the 14th Amendment guaranteed the right to enter into lawful contracts. So this is not something that's written in the 14th Amendment per se, but they read it into the 14th Amendment that the that there's a right to freedom of contract. And so this then becomes now the first decision that where the United States Supreme Court strikes down a state law uh, as unconstitutional for depriving a person of the right to enter into a, a lawful contract. And we're going back to the 14th Amendment. Listeners that uh, joined our, our legal conversation about the Supreme Court last time will recognize this amendment. Um, it's longer than the other Reconstruction Amendments, and uh, it has, you know, all sorts of, I guess, nooks and crannies. But is is there just something about the 14th Amendment that, um, I guess, <laughs> attracted people to playing with it, to, you know, dissecting it at the turn of the century? Well, before the Reconstruction Amendments in the uh, pre-Civil War, uh, the Bill of Rights includes in the Fifth Amendment an Equal Protection Clause and a Due Process Clause. But those are clauses in that period of time before the Civil War that only applied to action by the United States government. And in those days, the United States government did not get very much entangled into state uh, issues. So the states had their own constitutions, and those state constitutions may have also included similar guarantees. And any challenge under due process or equal protection pre-Civil War would have come under those state constitutional provisions in state courts, not federal courts. So after the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, Section 1, includes 
a provision that guarantees due process of law, equal protection of the law, and freedom of infringement of privileges and immunities, which was, as we learned last time, a dead letter now, as against state action. So now when the state impairs a due process right or equal protection of the law, it becomes a federal question that can go to the United States Supreme Court. So that's that's how this case gets to the Supreme Court. Whereas before the civil before the Fourteenth Amendment, it's it's just going to be a state action case, and it only goes to the state court. Interesting. So you know, it, it does seem like as the country is growing bigger, as it's industrializing after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, um, there is this movement towards a federal government, towards federal law or constitution. Um, which I guess, you know, there's almost this this magnetism about when countries grow bigger, the federal government um, seems to get, or the national government seems to get more involved. Um, so then what is the practical result of this first case? You know, um, what does this mean for people outside of Louisiana? What this means for people outside of Louisiana is that their attempts to pass local progressive legislation for the health and safety of its people or for the morals of its people or for overall just general quality of life of its people now have to be tested against this new federal right to contract. The majority opinion in Algar establishing the liberty of contract doctrine says that the principle of freedom of contract is the rule and states have to justify any regulation against this freedom. So employers, for example, would now use the Algar decision to contest uh, work hour limitations, minimum wage laws, union related questions, often successfully, not always, but often successfully. The court said that the right to follow any of the common occupations of life is an inalienable right and that it's formulated under, you know, um, right to life, liberty and pursuit of happiness from the from the Declaration of Independence. Ironically, that comes from the slaughterhouse cases, the dissents in the slaughterhouse cases. So uh, here they're adopting that language to ensure for employers particularly uh, guard against regulation on the local level. It does seem, um, and we're going to get more into this, but it does seem, you know, kind of perverse or disappointing maybe um, that these similar cases, these cases about the 14th Amendment are leading to the demise of civil rights legislation, but they are in essence helping business, helping big business. Um, is that something that people recognize at the time? You know, I, I, again, this is more for historians than um, someone who just studies the cases. But uh, I would suspect that there was a lot of tension, like, for example, uh, in, in, in all of these legislation, legislators that are passing these various uh, progressive legislation on the state level or the local level, minimum wage, I would suspect that there's a lot of opposition to them because businesses and capital uh, interests tend to be uh, fairly concentrated and fairly well organized. 
So I can't imagine, I mean, they were suing to get them overthrown. So I'm sure that they were fighting them in the halls. But there was, but, but there were also during these periods of time, very strong social groups and religious groups that were uh, working to create uh, better living conditions. And so you had um, not much of the way of a safety net. This is before any of the New Deal, obviously. Uh, safety net started to be created. So people who fell through the cracks fell pretty hard and uh, were very visible. You know, it could be anything from orphan orphans begging in the street to sanitation issues to the whole bit. And people wanted better quality of life in a lot of these industrialized areas. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, even <laughs> even if we we can't know everything or we have to do a lot of research to look into people's motivations versus just, you know, the legal case or the facts of the case. Um, we can still see th by the very fact of, of these laws um, or these cases existence, those contradictions, those fights between um, what different moral groups want, what different business groups want, civil rights groups, um, and so on. So this decision, a unanimous decision, um, as opposed to the very close slaughterhouse decision, helps lead in to what we consider or call the Lochner era. Um, so, <laughs> how does it lead to the Lochner era? What is the Lochner case? Okay, Lochner. Yeah, Lochner versus New York uh, is a decision from 1905. So seven years later. One thing that's kind of on your point that I want to add is I don't think that at any point this became settled in the public's mind. Because if you follow the Lochner era all the way to its end in 1937, there were a ton of cases that, uh, that were brought to the Supreme Court and were fought all up and down the lower courts over this issue of liberty of contract and the police power of the states and the local officials to regulate for the health and safety. The, the local governments did not always lose, but they lost a lot. And so uh, it became a, it was a very tough fight, but the local governments never stopped trying to make things better for the people that they represented. And so you had a steady stream of these Lochner era cases coming up to the Supreme Court. Sometimes the local government won and some more often, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but more often local governments lost, but they never quit. They never quit trying to figure out ways to make things better for the people. So I would say for that reason, I would say that this was a very hotly contested area of law during this 30 year period. And I also, you know, I do want to point out as well, because um, I think this is often, um, I say misunderstood um, about the, the North and the South is that, yes, we see um, horrendous Jim Crow um, and segregation in the South. Um, which we talked about in a previous episode. So that's my plug for <laughs> that past episode. But, you know, the first case we're talk we just talked about was in Louisiana, um, about Louisiana kind of progressive um, activist legislation. The case we're talking about here is in New York. So there are these pushes and pulls throughout the country as well. Um, you know, despite the uh, the conversation we just had about Jim Crow segregation and separate but equal in the South. So with that transition, what is Lochner versus New York? In 1895, uh, the New York legislature passed what's called the Bake Shop Act of 1895. And this is an act that includes some sanitation provisions for bakeries 
in the state of New York and also limits the working hours for people that work in bakeries to six days a week. And I believe it was 10 hours a day. Uh, yeah, 60 hour work week and also included uh, some other provisions. Proponents of the Bake Shop Act, which was passed unanimously in the New York legislature, argued that the law was necessary to promote citizenship, improve family life, protect health and safety and provide fairness to workers who were in no position to bargain for more equitable conditions. Opponents, And, and I just uh, want to add too that um, <laughs> if you missed it, that's a uh, a uh, humane 60 hour work week, uh, six days a week as well. Yeah, uh, 10 hours a day. You know, six yeah, days right. Day, Sundays off. And then, um, so opponents, though, cited social Darwinism, laissez faire economics, and opposition to unwarranted, what they say was unwarranted government intrusion into the marketplace. So that's the battle. A guy by the name of John Lochner was a small baker, and a lot of these uh, bake shops were single shops maybe three, four employees. But John Lochner was a small baker in Utica, New York, and he was convicted twice of violating the Bake Shop Act of 1895 and fined $25 the first time and fined $50 the second time. And what he was doing was having his employees work more than 60 hours. So essentially they were entering an agreement where they would work maybe 12 hours a day or maybe they'd work on Sundays and he would pay them for that. So he filed a lawsuit or he uh, defended his case on the grounds that the Bake Shop Act of 1895 violated his freedom of contract protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And um, previous to this, there had been some decisions that had upheld uh, work hour restrictions and industries like mining and smelting that were generally regarded or widely regarded as unhealthy. Those had been upheld. Uh, this case comes to the Supreme Court and it's decided against New York, against the act by a five to four decision. And uh, the uh, majority writes uh, that the law, the Bake Shop Act law, necessarily interfered unlawfully with the right of contract between the employer and the employee. And um Justice Peckham writing that decision was really concerned about the fact that if you just let legislators say, well, I'm defending this on the basis of the police power, the police power doesn't have any inherent limitations. And so the Justice Peckham saw the liberty of contract as a limitation on the police power. He distinguished the previous cases involving mining companies and smelting on the grounds that those were inherently unsafe and inherently risky to the health of the employees. But he took judicial notice of the fact that bake shops were not unhealthy. And so essentially he over, overruled the findings of the New York legislature. And that's where you get into this criticism of judicial activism. So th then I, I'm curious, um, you know, how would you describe this case? Um, because it does seem a little bit, I mean, I get that there is a difference between baking and like heavy manufacturing, but it also seems much more rooted in um, justice, justice's personal opinions than, um, you know, like a, a strict standard of law. Well, uh, you say that as though you read Justice Holmes' dissent 
because that, is, <laughs> that was what he said. Justice Holmes, there were four dissenting judges, and Justice Holmes wrote one that was very influential and is um, noted, probably the most noted. The other was written by Justice John Marshall Harlan, uh, who uh, was known and during his time on the court as the great dissenter. He was a dissenting judge in some of the civil rights cases that went against the civil rights of African-Americans. But Justice Holmes argued that the test in this type of case ought to be the rational person test, meaning would a rational person believe that the act is something other than a reasonable attempt to regulate for the health and safety of the public in the area that affected by the legislation. And he criticized the majority's approach, saying that uh, that giving the police power a limited scope and the liberty of contract a broad scope essentially allows judges to, to substitute their own opinions about what ought to be the law from that of the legislators who are in the position of fact-finding and making uh, conclusions as to what legislation ought to be uh, necessary. And so, you know, the ultimately, the great dissenters are dissenters, and they lose. Um, so what does this mean for, um, you know, the legislation going forward? What does this mean for states, uh, I guess, moral individual actors trying to craft legislation um, to protect our, our wonderful bakers from only working 60 hours a week. Um, and where does this end? Because I think that things have changed now. Things have changed uh, quite a bit. Uh, in 1910, President Roosevelt, that's uh, Theodore Roosevelt, was very critical of the court. By then, they had already followed up Lochner with another decision along the same lines, saying that the court was um, uh, subject, uh, substituting their own judgments uh, regarding what the law ought to be for that of legislators that are actually in a position to do fact-finding, hold hearings, and so forth, and craft laws to meet the needs of the public. And so this was a critical line of cases from the very beginning uh, after Lochner, uh, starting with uh, Roosevelt. Um, and essentially, I think it's important to point out that there is a difference between the Supreme Court and lower courts, trial courts, and there's also a difference between courts generally and legislators. Legislators have committees. The committees hold hearings. They can bring in experts. They can do fact-finding. Uh, legislators have broad powers to make findings based upon the hearings that they have and the uh, information they receive, and then craft legislation designed to address the issues that are raised by the findings that they've made. Trial courts do something similar in the sense that trial courts are fact finders. So a trial court uh, has a trial uh, where witnesses testify and sometimes the juries make the decisions about what the facts are and sometimes judges make decisions about the facts are and in either case the judge ultimately makes a decision about how the facts are applied to the law to, to yield a result. The Supreme Court of the United States and most appellate courts I think virtually all appellate courts are not courts of where fact-finding occurs. So unless it's a rare case where the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction, and there aren't very many of those, hardly any of those, <coughs> the Supreme Court doesn't do fact-finding. So when the Supreme Court 
contests the findings of a legislature, the first question that you ask is, what's the basis for that? Because you haven't had the hearings, you haven't had the witnesses in front of you. What is the authority of a court to second guess the work of legislators? And so today, because Lochner is no longer the law, we don't really see that as an issue. We, we kind of understand that our legislators do that legwork and that hard work of figuring out what's going on and what needs to happen. You may not like the result, but you know that's the way democracy works. But you do have fact finders in the, legislat- in the legislative bodies and the committees that do all the legwork and the hard work of figuring out uh, what needs to happen. So ending the Lochner era seems to be more of an opening for the democratic process for, I guess, as the the Constitution almost intended. You know, the critics of Lochner would say it's a period of judicial activism where legislators were prohibited from, from working for the best interests of the people that they represented. So there's a whole string of cases after Allgaier. Then you had Lochner in, uh, in Coppage versus Kansas. You had a case where the court struck down state legislation prohibiting yellow dog contracts. That's a union-related case. Uh, And Adams versus Tanner, another case following Lochner, the state struck down legislation. I mean, the court struck down legislation prohibiting private-owned companies from assessing agency fees for their services. You had another case called Hammer versus Dagenhart, striking down federal regulation of child labor. Uh, you had a case called Atkins versus Children's Hospital, striking down federal legislation mandating a minimum wage level for women and children in the District of Columbia. And there were so many other legis- uh, acts that were struck down during this period. Not all of them were. Some of them were upheld as a legitimate exercise of police power, but it was generally seen in the area of economic reg- regulation as a period of judicial activism where the findings of legislation legislators were routinely second guessed by by the courts, and of course, all of this was also playing out in the lower courts as well. Cases that didn't make it to, to the Supreme Court, because as you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear every case, whereas you know trial courts have to hear what's filed, and appellate courts usually have to hear what's brought. So then, to clarify, where did this end? This ended with the New Deal. Uh, there was still New Deal legislation during FDR's first term that was struck down uh, during uh, using the Lochner era, uh, freedom of contract and uh, judicial activism. But after the election of 1936, in which Franklin Roosevelt was elected for a second term, there came to the court a case called West Coast Hotel Company versus Parrish. And this is a case that revisited the minimum uh, wage law that was struck down in 1923 in Atkins versus Children's Hospital. And in this case, Justice Owen Roberts, who had been a a faithful vote, pro-Lochner vote, switched and voted to to with uh, with the dissenters from Atkins that was, you know, I don't know if the court was exactly the same 14 years later, but. Uh, switched to give a five to four decision to overturn Atkins and uphold this law. And that switch is sometimes known in in, in, in uh, public uh, parlance as uh, the switch in time that saved nine, because it was rumored and reported that uh, Justice Roosevelt was planning to pack the court 
in order to avoid having the problem of his New Deal legislation overturned by the Supreme Court. And it is said that Justice Roberts switched his vote and his approach in these cases to avoid the, the possibility of, a, of an increased court. Just Chief Justice Hughes, in his autobiography, said that after FDR's election in 1936, he was able to persuade Justice Roberts to no longer base his votes on his own political, personal political views about how cases ought to be decided and to side with Hughes on the approach that he took to New Deal regulation, which was similar to the dissenting opinions in uh, in Lochner by Justice Harlan and Justice Holmes, which was essentially a type of rational person test or what is now referred to as rational basis review, as long as there's a rational basis for economic regulation. And that's, again, looking a little bit ahead past the turn of the century, but it's interesting to see kind of the thesis for this show, right, is that (laughs) the um, effects of the turn of the 20th century right around the end, beginning um, of the 1900s, 1800s, 1900s, um, affects the middle of the century, affect uh, the period right now and 100 years later. Um, And I was just curious on the side, you know, do you know how often Supreme Court justices write autobiographies where they talk very um, detailed, I guess, about, um, you know, their other justices' political views. That seems like a very testy water for the Chief Justice Hughes to get into. I don't know if Justice Hughes resigned. Chief Justice Hughes resigned from the court and wrote that as a private citizen. But I think Supreme Court justices used to be more political than they're seen to be now. But that's partly because in those days, it was not uncommon for a president to nominate somebody to be a Supreme Court justice on a Wednesday and they would be confirmed on a Friday. Um, now, it's such a political football. I think justices are a lot more circumspect. It also wasn't that uncommon to see judges, justices nominated from the political arena. For example, uh, Justice Brennan who was nominated for the Supreme Court in a, in a, a firm uh, uh, by the Senate or con- confirmed by the Senate. He had been a politician. He'd been a candidate for governor or, or in uh, California. You just don't see today people coming out of the political class uh, to become, uh, or at least the open political class to become Supreme Court justices. President Taft later became a Supreme Court justice, you know, I was going to say that, yeah, that's that's kind of the the classic example. He, I think he was chief justice as well, if I'm not mistaken, which is uh, really the job he wanted all along, I think, I think famously. Was, I think he was the chief justice before Hughes. Okay, yeah. Um, and so that fits perfectly in. Um, but I may, be, I may be wrong about that. You'll hear about it if I'm wrong, but I yeah. think that's what it was. <laughs> With all, all my Taft fans out there. Yeah, you're Taft. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah no I mean I now it's a whole thing to look into is uh, is autobiographies where Supreme Court justices kind of uh, throw each other under the bus. Um, but the last thing that I wanted to ask you about is you know in a way this period is very technical. It's about contract cases. It's about um, labor and uh, you know some of the issues of of progressives and unions and all these different parts mixing together. It's not as famous like I said before as the line separate but equal. But it's very, very important. Um, 
you know, how do you think this period compares to today? What do you think about some of the parallels that people draw with um, the Lochner era and I guess a, a chief John Roberts court? Well, the Lochner era is really interesting because after the switch in time, I guess, if you want to call it that way, uh, around that period of time, and I think it was a little bit before the Atkins decision, not the Atkins decision, the West Coast Hotel decision, there was a case called Caroline Products. And that case included what's known as footnote four, the famous footnote four, where the court said that economic regulations are going to be judged under what's called a rational basis test that comes out of the dissent from the Lochner case. But cases that involve personal rights, personal liberties would be subject to strict scrutiny. So cases involving racial discrimination and other types of, uh, of uh, say, free speech, let's say, or uh, equal uh, due process or equal protection would be uh, judged under what's called the strict scrutiny test. So those legislation that impairs those individual liberties would be given a harder look than economic liberties. And that became, in a lot of ways, the way the court handled this type of constitutional litigation going forward, strict scrutiny for certain types of cases, rational basis tests for other types of of cases. Now, that is a little bit under attack today, although you really don't find too many people that are overtly in favor of the Lochner era. It's kind of a discredited period. You do have the, this idea that Lochner, there is kind of an effort, I think, on some in some corners to rehabilitate uh, Lochner today, but it hasn't really gotten a lot of traction in the courts themselves. But, uh, for example, Justice Roberts, who you mentioned, was critical of the Lochner era during his uh, confirmation hearings. Justice uh, Judge Robert Bork, during his confirmation hearings, uh, was critical of the Lochner era. They would certainly be representative of the right side of the judicial uh, world. And uh, people on the left universally abhor this period of time because uh, people that are more progressive tend to see the types of legislation that was overturned uh, during the Lochner era as as a, as good things. Are there any cases today that um, people point to as being similar to the Lochner era? Uh, none that I can think of because nobody wants to associate them. No one on the court <laughs> wants to associate or be criti- called a revivalist of the Lochner era because it is such a it is a period where there was widely seen as being a period of, of substantial judicial activism, and nobody really wants to be called a judicial activist. I think what 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 uh, what you do see is a little bit of a chipping away of the distinction between rational basis and strict scrutiny. Uh, people that are more in favor of legislation that might impair, based upon uh, free speech or race or or so so forth might see strict scrutiny as something that maybe should be a little less strict. And people that um, are against economic regulation uh, would like to see economic regulation tested under some higher level of scrutiny, maybe intermediate scrutiny or something else. So you see kind of a juggling of the way these these different uh, tests are applied based upon the type of, of uh, legislation at, at issue, but not... There really isn't anybody out there clamoring to return to the judicial activism of the Lochner era. And I think this is a really good place to end it, because when you hear, you know, someone talk about um, legislating from the bench or judicial activism um, 
or lumping that in with, you know, being like a Lochner era judge or a decision, you know, that people compare, you know what that means now, you know, the kind of slur that might be. Um, but this has been really enlightening to talk about a huge period in early modern and turn of the century history from the Supreme Court and legal perspective. Again, I will remind everyone um, that if you loved the voices that you heard today or the guest voice, please subscribe, listen to Hooks and Runs um, with Craig Estelbaum. And I will look forward to hearing and talking soon. Thanks so much, Craig. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.